Hey, it's great that you could be with us. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Acts chapter 14. It'd be great if you could hit pause and give that a read and then come back. That's Acts chapter 14. Last week, we started thinking uh, about how Acts 13 kicks off the second major section in the book of Acts. Chapters 1 to 12 focus on Peter and his ministry to the Jews. Chapters 13 to the end focus on Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, we got off to a pretty good start. Paul uh, started by going into the synagogue, which is what he usually did. He spoke to uh, many of the Jews first uh, about Jesus, and um, they actually loved what he had to say. Uh, we, we saw that um, they came to him afterwards and said, listen, that was really great. Could you come back next week? And uh, we'd love to hear more from you. So they did. And when they arrived, the whole town had pitched up to listen to them. But that included Gentiles. And the Jews weren't so happy about that. They actually got really jealous and started opposing what Paul and Barnabas had to say. And uh, we didn't spend any time looking at it, but the chapter actually ends with Paul and Barnabas being run out of town. The Jews couldn't see that uh, what God had planned all along was to bring all people to himself, Jew and Gentile, without distinction, through Jesus. Now, chapter 14 continues that story. And so we're going to be spending some time uh, looking at mainly the first 20 verses, uh, just for the sake of time. Uh, but verse 27, uh, which kind of caps off the chapter, uh, gives a nice summary of what these two chapters are really all about. So uh, verse 27, when they arrived back in Antioch, now not Pisidian Antioch, but the other Antioch, which you might remember is where they started back in 13 verse 1. Uh, when they arrived back in Antioch, uh, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles or the nations. So let's take a look at how that worked itself out in chapter 14. It really took place in two locations. So first they went to Iconium and then they went to Lystra. Uh, so we'll think a bit about what happened in each location and then think about what it means for us in our location and in our own time. Uh, so first in Iconium, verses 1 to 7. Paul and Barnabas arrived in Iconium and made straight for the synagogue. Again, Paul's usual strategy, uh, where they began telling people about Jesus. Presumably much the same thing, uh, so much the same thing that they said the previous week in, um, in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, but um, some didn't really like what they had to say. Now, notice uh, it's a mixed bunch here. So some really did, Jews and Gentiles. Some really didn't. Again, Jews and Gentiles. So uh, verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. But those who sided with the Jews hatched a, well, less than kosher plan. Uh, they wanted to get Paul stoned um, and uh, to do whatever they, they could to, to get rid of him. One scholar actually explains the sort of... Uh, cultural setting of the time. Uh, under law, city magistrates could do whatever necessary to quell disturbances. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, the officials could quell the disturbance simply by legally banning them from the city. Thus, the plot to kill them goes beyond the law. Turns out their plan didn't work out anyway, not this time. Um, Paul and Barnabas found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derby, 
and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. That's verses 6 and 7. Now, the point seems pretty straightforward. Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium. Uh, they preach the gospel. They receive very mixed responses. And in the end, they're forced out by persecution. But sandwiched in the middle there is a, a detail that I think we, uh, we're meant to pay attention to. Um, so look at verse 3. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. Now, throughout this whole section, uh, the fact that they're preaching the gospel, that they're actually opening their mouths and speaking about Jesus is front and center. That is how people come to know Jesus, by people speaking. So none of this preach the gospel and if necessary, use words nonsense. No, uh, Paul will go on to say in Romans 10, how can they uh, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them. Speaking the gospel is imperative, but it is also significant that God confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Now, it's entirely possible to get carried away with uh, talk of signs and wonders. And I, I think some Christians probably do go too far in, in the way that they emphasize and expect it to be the norm for um, for. Uh, the Christian life today. Um, but for most people I speak to, the other extreme is actually the bigger issue. Um, the assumption is that, um, well, they usually actually they just skip right past it. Or, or if they don't, then they heap on a whole lot of qualifiers of, well, yeah, but don't expect that today. Now, to be sure, this is a question, a question that Christians are divided over. People reading the same Bible come to different answers about that. And before being too critical of people on the other side of the fence, uh, maybe it would be worth giving last week's sermon another listen and thinking a little bit more about uh, tribalism. Uh, but whatever you think about the place of miraculous spiritual gifts and their, their place in the life of the church today, uh, I think the point here in Acts 14 is the same. Signs and wonders authenticate the gospel uh, that is preached. But how do they do that? Well, I don't think it's as simple as, well, look what I can do, and since I can do that, you better believe what I also have to say. Uh, the fact that they're able to do signs and wonders, and it's important that they're called signs and wonders, uh, not miracles or something more generic, uh, puts them in line with a bunch of people, the other apostles, for instance, uh, back in Acts uh, 40, uh, sorry, Acts 4 verse 30, the disciples pray for boldness, that God would stretch out his hand to heal uh, and perform signs and wonders through the name of his holy servant, Jesus. And it puts uh, Paul and Barnabas in line with Jesus himself. So Acts 2 verse 22, we read that uh, Peter in preaching his sermon says, um, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And it puts uh, Paul and Barnabas in line with the Old Testament. So uh, Exodus 7 verse 3, God says he will perform signs and wonders uh, and bring his people out of Egypt. Now, we are told what that looked like in Iconium, but we are told how that looked in Lystra. So we're going to uh, cut across to, to Lystra and see what happened there. 
So, pick up verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Uh, Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When people saw this, they were amazed. So amazed, in fact, that they mistook Paul and Barnabas for gods. The gods have come down to us in human, in human form. Uh, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus then, then pitched up and they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Uh, now, this, of course, wasn't the reaction that they were going for. Um, and so when, when they saw this, they, they actually ran out and said, guys, 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 stop, stop. W- what are you doing? No, no, no. Uh, friends, why are you doing this? We're only human like you, verse 15. Uh, and they're going to explain that the point of what they were saying is actually that they should get rid of their idols and turn to the one true God, not bow down and worship them. This time, though, they didn't get quite so lucky. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and won the crowds over and they grabbed Paul and they stoned him. Now, that by itself is enough of a roller coaster. Uh, but when we look a little bit more closely, I think we see a few more uh, links that um, uh, w- with earlier parts of the book of Acts that I think cast this in a slightly different light. Back in Acts 3, Peter looked straight at a lame man that was sitting by a gate and told him to get up and he jumped to his feet. The whole crowd around him was so amazed. That is, except the priests of Jerusalem. Uh, So they had him and John arrested and put on trial. And it's actually after they're released from uh, from that, that they pray that prayer that we looked at earlier in in chapter 4, where they, they ask God to perform signs and wonders through them. The story that we just saw with Paul and Barnabas actually follows the same general shape. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the same language. You might want to go and read those stories back to back and see um, just how the same words are used um, to uh, to tell the, the different stories. Paul looked straight at the lame man who was sitting and listening to him and told him to get up and he jumped to his feet. The whole crowd around him was amazed, that is, except the Jews and convinced the whole crowd that actually this might have looked impressive, but this wasn't a good idea. These stories don't end quite the same. Uh, Peter and John don't end up getting stoned. Paul does. Uh, Paul getting stoned, though, might make us think of another part earlier in Acts of Stephen, who, after a sermon that he preached to the Sanhedrin, um, he actually did get dragged out and and got stoned. Uh, The difference was that Stephen didn't make it out alive, which, in all fairness, is what usually happened when people got stoned. So what difference does it make reading these chapters uh, or these stories together? Well, I think it makes the point that we were making last week, that uh, the point that uh, this whole section of Acts, I think, is, is making for us. In Acts 1, Jesus told his disciples that they were to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were at the time, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions to everywhere. Uh, And all of this is framed in the context of Jesus as God's king, as the chosen king who's come to to bring peace and order and rule. The story of uh, God establishing his king over his people and the story of God drawing all the nations to himself is the same story. Or, as we put it last week, in Christ, 
God is doing what he's always been doing, just in a much fuller way. So let's think about what this means for us. Well, there are a few things that I think we can take from this chapter. The first is to see that Jesus is king over all. Maybe you see that already. Maybe you've acknowledged that. Maybe you've bowed the knee to his lordship already. Maybe you haven't. If you have, uh, we'll have more to think about what that looks like in, in just a minute. But, but if you haven't, at this point, can I just, can I, can I just speak to you? Can I urgently uh, ask you to reconsider? Can I urgently ask you to reconsider, to take another look at Jesus, to take, take a look at what kind of king Jesus is? He isn't one that just barks orders and tells us what we can't do. Uh, nor is he the sort of king who uh, just sits back and lets the world run its course. No, at just the right time, Jesus stepped into this world and died. He died to, to bring death and sin and everything that opposes him to its end. And he invites you and everyone to be a part of that kingdom, to find your joy with him. Friends, if you take an honest look at who Jesus really is, I'm convinced that what you'll see is that this is a king you'd want to serve. Now, if you're still on the fence, the second thing that I think we should notice from this passage might put you off at first. The second thing is that we can't expect following Jesus to be easy. Paul and Barnabas got uh, run out of town by the end of chapter 13. Uh, they made a narrow escape in uh, the first bit of chapter 14, and Paul didn't make an escape in the second bit. Uh, he survived uh, being stoned, but I can't imagine it was the most fun he's ever had. In 2, Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12, he actually gives a list of all the things that um, that have happened to him because he's been a follower and a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. As being stoned, being shipwrecked, being imprisoned, being beaten. And in the end, um, that's the cause of his death. He, uh, he gets sentenced to death for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't expect following Jesus to be an easy ride. But we can expect it to be worthwhile. Through it all, Paul was empowered by the grace of God uh, to carry on, uh, driven by a deep joy in God and a deep conviction that through Jesus, God is working out his plans and purposes. Uh, it's a joy and a conviction that you can have too. It's uh, a joy and a conviction that while following Jesus might not be easy, that greater joy is to be found in Christ than anything that this world can offer. The third thing I think we learn from this passage is to make sure that you're not that opposition yourself. Now, if you're not a Christian and uh, uh, then what you might hear is don't go and give Christians a hard time. And yeah, don't do that. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be a nice thing to do. But really who I'm talking to here is uh, those who would call Jesus their king. 
those who have bowed the knee to him. Make sure that you're not that opposition yourself. Think again about the crowds who um, who thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. They were so blinded by their idolatry that they couldn't see who Jesus really is. And by extension, who Paul and Barnabas really were. Idolatry is just the word that we use for anything that we... Uh, anything in our lives that have taken the place that belongs only to God. Uh, that might be our stuff, our money, our possessions. That might be uh, our, our prospects or our priorities, uh, the plans that we make without reference to God or uh, without any interest of being involved in uh, the building of his kingdom. Idols are those things that steal our joy away from God by convincing us that they are more valuable than him, that they are more worth our time than, than him, that they will offer us more satisfaction and happiness, more security, uh, more everything than God. The problem is that sometimes we don't even notice our idols are there. One writer that tells the story of uh, um, his wife going to Nepal and uh, while she was driving down the road, there, there was a rock that was kind of in the middle of, of you know, the middle of the road. Uh, well, not in the middle of the road. Actually, they'd paved around it because although this rock wasn't all that big, they didn't want to move it. They'd rather just pave around. Um, and as a Westerner coming in, she thought, wow, that's odd. Why didn't they just move the rock? And she saw it immediately. But the locals, they didn't bat an eyelid. First of all, because they were used to seeing this rock there. Second of all, because they saw this rock as sacred. Uh, so it's not just that they didn't feel like moving it. It's actually that they didn't feel they could move it. Um, they felt constrained to, to, to leave it there. But having been there for so long, they'd stop really noticing it. Just going round was part of a normal day. The same might be true of us. Uh, it, we might be so used to the way that we do things. So used to the place our idols hold in our lives uh, that... When it comes time to make a decision, they cloud our vision and pull us away from God, perhaps without us even noticing that we have made a decision at all. And this is what I mean when I say, don't be that opposition. Sure, don't be that opposition to somebody else, but take the time to reflect on your habits, on the way that you, you do things, the decisions that you make. Make it conscious so that you're not making uh, an opposition you're not standing in opposition to yourself and putting idols in the way when actually you didn't even know you were doing it. When Paul uh, got up and brushed the dust off, he and Barnabas left for Derby, And in uh, verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won large numbers of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And notice what they said to them. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Following Jesus isn't going to be easy, but it is worthwhile.